In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists, broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate for the week beginning Monday, May the 4th. Yes, and May the 4th be with you indeed. From the studios of 2SER and across the community radio network, your weekly discussion on journalism and the media. My name is Rafael Garcia, back again in the host chair. And tonight, how did the media handle the recent executions in Indonesia? And are the gloves now off to speak more freely? Did Fairfax Media sell the family silver when they shipped off their photo archives to be digitized by a company that they're now suing? Well, joining us in the studio this week, we have Tom Allard, National Affairs Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. Hello, Tom. G'day, Raphael. Amy Coops, freelancer and former Agence France Press reporter. Hello, Amy. Hello. And also on the phone, we have John Drinnan, media writer for the New Zealand Herald. Hello, John. Now, as always, if you have something to say about what we're discussing, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle is at fourthestateau. That's all letters, no numbers. And last Tuesday, Indonesia executed Australians Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, along with six others for drug trafficking. Numerous accounts of them being reformed, multiple rounds of appeal, and even the UN begging for mercy was not enough to stop the two Australians from being shot dead. We all know it's too late to make a difference in this case, but let's spend some time looking at the role Australia media, Australian media played. Last year here on Fourth Estate, the brother of one of the Balibo Five, those Australian journalists killed by Indonesian forces back in Timor in 1975, told us that Australian journalists had not been hard enough on Indonesian authorities. But at the same time, there can be criticism for being just too harsh. You may well remember the amount of criticism the Australian government suffered after Bob Hawke labelled Malaysia as barbaric for hanging two young Australian heroin traffickers in 1986. So first of all, Amy, how did Australian media do this time around? I think, um, you know, I actually think that they did pretty well. I mean, I think it's a very, it's one of those stories that, is, is such an intense eye of the storm type of yarns and, and everybody was interested in it. And I think we're in this strange moment where social media has created this town square, an atmosphere that, you know, I, I remember when Van Nguyen was killed, you know, about 10 years or less than 10 years ago, but quite some years ago now. And that was a very different, I think, the way it was sort of talked about in the media was very different. And I also think, yeah, the public experience of of that story was very different so yeah I think sort of lots of people experienced this for, for me here experienced the story via Twitter and Facebook and it felt like people were holding a vigil or something you know like there was so many people and there was that whole light the candle people sitting in their lounge rooms and I felt like there were so many people on Twitter that night who couldn't bring themselves to go to bed you know and Tom was on the other side of <laughs> the the sea over there actually experiencing it. So, Tom, you were over there just recently. That's right. Uh, how, how do you think Australian media held up this time? Look, uh, I think uh, you know, we did a pretty good job, actually. I mean, it was a very uh, difficult environment to report in. I mean, emotionally intense. Um, you know, the, the 24-hour news cycle really hit us. You know, we were filing for, for digital 
stories every couple of hours, such was the demand. And the story was also moving along. There was a lot of news going around in those last few days, uh, not just with uh, Andrew Chanamire and Sukumaran, but with Mary Jane Veloso. To you know, it's a Indonesia's a hot uh, place. People weren't getting much sleep. So I think, all in all, people did a pretty pretty good job. Did Did you feel that the Australian media um, had? Uh uh, de- made a deliberate attempt this time around to 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 put just the right amount of pressure. <clears throat> well, look, I think it was unusual in that uh, I think it's fair to say you know most of the the vast majority of the Australian media was sympathetic to the cause of Andrew Tandemire and Sukumar, and I would argue that because it was a clear cut case of two reformed men. I mean that reformation cannot be doubted. They've changed you know they changed hundreds of lives. So. Um, you know, there was a real feeling of injustice, and I think the media grasped hold of that, and I think the public felt the same way and responded to it. So there was a little bit of partisanship, I suppose, in the way the media approached it, you could argue. Certainly the Indonesian authorities would, but um, I think that was natural, and this was a very special case. But in that, And also, I think it's also fair to say, the other voices did get heard uh, from the Indonesian side and those in Australia who, who did who thought they deserved to die for whatever reason. But uh, largely, yeah, the, the media was very sympathetic. And you mentioned the Van Nguyen case, uh, very different uh, experiences. And, and that was in large part because the media didn't get told the proper story of Van Nguyen until right at the end, literally a few days. I mean, this was a remarkable young man who was writing the most extraordinary letters out of prison. I mean, they are profound. They are beautiful, beautiful things. They were only released... The day before, day or two before he died, or even afterwards, the fact that he was bringing the drugs over for his uh, his brother, his twin brother, who was a heroin addict, you know, and wasn't a wasn't a drug dealer or user himself, you know, these only came out in the last two days. So, a lot of more of the information about Andrew Chandamore and Sukumaran came out came out early. So that gave the the time for the media to understand the story and, and tell it to Australia. Amy. When, when the pair were sentenced back in uh, 2006, um, a Sydney newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, printed the words, no sympathy, next to their photo. Um, there was a clear shift here in, in, in the mood, wasn't there, in, in um, the original reporting and the reporting that we've seen recently. Why is that? I think, yeah, it comes back to what I was saying before about there being more of a public square around these issues now. With, with social media, I feel like people feel as though they have more of a stake in it. And it's this funny, I guess, tension between is the media reflecting um, the public mood or is the public mood, you know, fed by the media? It's one of those eternal questions that is very difficult to answer. But I think that certainly the tabloid press (laughs) have moderated their coverage and and views on this sort of issue. And I'd like to think it, it is a reflection of changes in the the public mood around this which I do think to a degree the public were galvanized by those letters from Van Nguyen and the experiences of him being killed and and I guess the thing that was so gripping about this as you were saying right up until the end things were changing Mary Jane Veloso was taken from prison you know literally the 11th hour and I think everyone back here in Australia still were holding on to this idea that maybe maybe there was a chance you know maybe some something could change and and that's a strange element to this story as well i think it is i mean and i think another reason for that transformation from the uh 
is in in the the men themselves actually i mean when they were first arrested they were um they were insolent they were rude they were in denial they were very hostile to the media they were asked to testify in the cases of some of the other barley nine and they just lied you know um they didn't engage with the media and though the two of them personally went through a transformation it took took a bit of time you know and i think uh you know once that transformation began and people realized it and it got you know relayed and communicated to the australian people that changed uh, that, that had a big effect and, and changed the story so there was whilst you know, I'm personally opposed to the death penalty in, in any case. I mean, the, these these guys did themselves no favours, um, and they would they they readily admitted that, and they were poorly advised by a, 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 their previous group of lawyers who told them deny, deny, deny. You didn't have the drugs on you. you you'll get out of it. Don't worry. And so they they took on that strategy as well, and and that uh, backfired terribly, fatally for them. But it also had the impact of. Um, uh, you know, making them unsympathetic characters to the Australian people. Okay. Um, Amy, do you think that um, it's now time to remove our gloves and, and speak more freely about uh, about Indonesia and how um, this all played out? Well, I mean, I think that there's certainly been that conversation had in the past few days that, um, you know, it's emerged that journalists, certainly in Indonesia anyway, Australian journalists were sort of backgrounded by default on how they should approach the story and things they should and shouldn't say in, so as not to compromise the diplomatic efforts that were happening behind the scenes. Um, in term, I mean, there's still a diplomatic situation happening. That's the fact of the matter. I mean, you know, Grigson's been called back to Australia and... Things are on rocky ground, it seems, between Australia and Indonesia for now. So now is not the time, I don't think, for the Australian press to uh, be taking the gloves off, so to speak. But, yeah, I'd be interested to know what Tom thinks about that. Yeah. Um, well, look, it, it, it's an unusual story because the stakes are so high, you know, and, and I think as a journalist, if, if, you, if you're being told your story is going to put their lives in jeopardy, they're already in jeopardy, but reinforce their the likelihood they're going to be killed. You're going to you're going to think about it twice. I think that's fair to say, and, and I think we all did. I mean, the only time that you know I withheld any information from one of my stories was when I did a story, I think, in around mid March, just reporting on the internal cabinet uh, divisions over it, um, and I didn't name the. Uh, the people who were opposing Jokowi on this, because if it came, if it had come out, then they would have been, you know, pilloried possibly in the Indonesian press, and it would have killed it, right? The killed killed that that internal momentum. So I was convinced not to reveal their names. The names, or at least one of them, have since come out, which is Yusuf Kala, the um, the vice president, was agitating quite strongly for uh, the president to uh, to. Uh, grant a stay of execution so that that was one example but look is it time to take the gloves off i don't really understand that because generally the australian press was pretty vigorous pretty uh, tough on indonesia you know pathetically weak uh peter harch's uh, one famous uh, column now uh that he wrote in the in you know he really gave it to jacoby with both barrels and and you know i was writing myself you know two two months ago as were others that you know this was sort of he was doing this because his domestic political fortunes were failing and and uh, you know he was using this as a sort of populist nationalist tool to 
regain favour. I mean, that a lot of people were, were saying that and writing that. I mean, and that's that's pretty hard on the Indonesian president to say he's killing people for domestic political reasons. But that that was part of the equation, I believe, mm. and and we wrote it. And I don't know if you can take your gloves off more than that Courier Mail front page. That's right. <laughs> With that's the blood right. on the hands, yeah. I thought that was pretty. Yeah. I thought that was counterproductive, but you know, that's but I mean, the Courier Mail. And as for advocating, you know, for for boycotting Bali or anything like that, I mean, I. You know, personally, I didn't think that was a. That's not something I personally support, and it wasn't something my paper supported. We were happy to have the debate, but there's, you know, there's ordinary Indonesians who, many of whom are opposed to the death penalty, particularly in Bali, which is a distinct culture, who, mm. who would be punished. You know, and and I think the best way going forward is engagement. You know, it's a it's a wonderful country with wonderful people with a huge potential that's you know, frankly, badly let down by its elites, you know, very badly. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Rafael Garcia, Tom Allard, Amy Coops, and um, John Drinnen, who's joining us from New Zealand on the phone. John, um, you you would have heard of um, um, Prime Minister Tony Abbott um, reminding Indonesia of the aid money that we've sent them in the past. Um, did that seem out of? Uh, did did that seem like it didn't really help the cause to you? It, 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 it seems really odd that uh, in international relations and that way. I mean, I think if it's it clearly if, if you're talking to your electorate, I mean, it, it probably sounds good to a certain part of Abbott's yeah, electorate, but it just seems sort of slightly bizarre. So what what that contributed to the to the um, to the, to the um, uh, things changing in, in Bali, I don't know. But I guess sort of we're we're all a bit bemused and interested by. Uh, Abbott, because he is sort of quite entertaining, um, but um, uh, it, 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 I guess we're just a little bit sort of um, surprised about the number of times he seems to be putting his foot in the like that. Um, Tom, you mentioned, um, uh, I believe yourself or, or Amy mentioned, um, you know, uh, President Jokowi wouldn't have liked to see, you know, some of the coverage that was in the press here, you know, and the bloodied hands and, and things like that. Um, was this just um, yet another thing that uh, perhaps could have uh, insulted him, um, Amy? Well, to be frank, I don't think he seems to care very much about <laughs> whether what what the Australian press is saying about him or not. And if anything, it probably galvanises him further into playing to the domestic audience in Indonesia on this issue. Um, yeah, I don't I don't get the sense that he feels ashamed of it. I mean, he may be troubled, but that's his own his own private, I guess, matter. And look, it's always perilous to to guess the motivations of other people when you're reporting, you know. So we don't know if Jaco is responding well or otherwise to what we're doing. So you, you really, as a journalist, you just you just do it with, I guess, the limitation unless someone can give you a, a persuasive uh, argument, very persuasive argument in these circumstances that you're going to endanger the lives of the two guys. For sure. And Tom, you were you were there last week. Yeah. So you would have witnessed the scenes that we saw on television, mm. for example, of the families being dragged through the crowds and, and trying to just make their, their way through. How, What can we say about the behavior of media in, in these circumstances that the family are grieving and just trying to get to the, to the port and trying to get as close as they can to their loved ones? Yeah. And media is, I guess, in a way, getting in the way. Sure. Well, look... The Indonesian media is um, is free, fair, uh, free and kind of feral, you know, as well. You know, there's the, the, the media scrums over there are something to behold. Although, you know, outside of Downing Street Court with a big case, it's probably not far away, to be honest, over here. But um, 
But look, the families have been travelling back and forth to, to Bali for 10 years. They've been of media interest, you know, for um, most of that time. And they're, they're actually reasonably used to that, that sort of, uh, you know, kerfuffle that we saw that looked so distressing on TV. Look, I know that they knew that they would have to do the walk. And my understanding is they were, whilst it was incredibly upsetting for them, they were happy to do it. And maybe happy is not the the right word, prepared to do it. Mm. Because they wanted the world to see their grief. You know, they wanted to it to be known, you know, this is what the death penalty does to families. And so they were prepared bravely, I guess, to to make that walk and I, I don't think it's something they regret and just remember that they've, they've been through plenty of those scrums before. Amy, does does the do the commercial imperatives here of, you know, reporting on on something that is very current and and definitely newsworthy for us, you know, certainly from the Australian perspective, does that conflict with human feelings and, you know, what the family was feeling at the time and it's it's the perennial struggle as a journalist when you're sent into these kind of situations and you see the naked grief of people who are in that sort of a predicament or if you go to natural disasters, you know, I've had people spit on me and call me a parasite. <laughs> you know, these these are like the most raw human experiences that, that you can be thrust into. That's one of the amazing privileges of working as a journalist. Um, I think sometimes commercial imperatives can go too far and I've certainly seen that in my time you know like being at the Victorian bushfires and having a commercial television network land the helicopter in Marysville which was then a forensic crime scene you know because they wanted to be the first ones to have the footage but uh, I think I think you have to remain human as a journalist you know and I think that's the, the best and most important thing you can do is be thinking about those families even if you know you have to be there and you have to be in the scrum you know like understand try to understand what they're going through and and don't be the people who are asking provocative questions to try and get them to cry on camera you know and if you can make a gesture of compassion to them do it you know I, I don't think that's trite I think it's actually it can be appropriate in those situations that's probably a good note to um, end that topic We're, you're listening to fourth estate with myself Rafael Garcia Tom Allard from SMH Amy Coops John Drinnan joining us from the New Zealand Herald in 2013, Fairfax Media copped criticism for sending its photographic archive to a company in the U.S., Rogers Photo Archive, to be digitized. The idea was that the Arkansas-based company would transform Fairfax's estimated close to 10 million photographs and negatives into a future-proof digital format, making it more readily available to not only Fairfax pu publications but also the wider community. Fast forward to 2015, and here we are with the company having gone into receivership and facing a series of lawsuits. The fate of photos depicting over 100 years of history is now uncertain. It's unclear where they've gone or if they'll be returned. John Drinnan, you've been following this closely, and a large number of the photos are from New Zealand papers. Can you tell us how Fairfax Media made this decision and what has now happened? Uh, well, it's, uh, it, uh, as we understand anyway, it was a decision made in Australia and uh, the Fairfax executives here implemented it. Um, they, uh, so in May uh, 2013, they uh, they pretty much defined the, the deal with um, this company in, in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and sent it over there. Um, I guess in, in the end, um, 
it makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it, so to, to, to digitise this stuff, uh, because um, it was going to be a very expensive uh, uh, task to try and do it um, uh, in New Zealand, or impossibly expensive. Um, but if there is any question, really, I think it's, it's the degree that sort of there wasn't any checks made on what the background was for this company, um, and um, how how sure they could be about it um, uh, meeting its obligations. Sorry, can you talk us through just how significant this archive is? Well, in New Zealand, it's uh, basically New Zealand is a, is a duopoly of basically sort of two. Uh, to newspaper companies, and this is because there are no cross-media ownership rules, there's actually not that many uh, media companies overall. Um, so it really is account amounts to sort of half of the um, uh, newspaper photo archives for New Zealand going back to going back to the 19th century. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on how much uh, uh, what the uh, the Australian uh, archive comprises, but. Uh, certainly, it's sort of a, it includes a lot of the uh, material from the Sydney Morning Herald, and not 100% sure about uh, the age either. So it, it is a it is a huge thing, um, uh, and again, it makes some sort of sense to be able to to digitise and bring it back. And the, the idea was that uh, this company would be able to sell off um, a certain proportion of the, of the originals um, and digitise the uh, all of the archive and send it back to New Zealand, and, and it, it made sense. But the the unfortunately, sort of um, within three months of the archive arriving in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, there was the FBI raiding, raiding the uh, the, uh, the premises for this this company. Um, it's facing about ninety-five million dollars US um, of claims in, um, uh, in in the courts over there. It's been faced into receivership, um, and so the Fairfax uh, archives, both in New Zealand and Australia, are being held by the receiver at the moment. Now, there's an amazing sort of uh, um, uh, level of um, uh, uh, denial, it seems, from Fairfax about this. Um, again, eventually you, you do find out some details. I, I rang Fairfax today just to find if there had been any um, any changes in, in, in the status of this stuff without getting a reply. And I guess that this is what I, I wonder about with a lot of uh, media companies, and of course we we do sort of uh, like to bang the, bang the table and sort of demand action and so on, but Fairfax um, has been very, very um, remiss in, in, in not actually sort of fronting up this very well, I don't think. Um, Tom Allard, obviously working for Sydney Morning Herald, Fairfax, um, we, we do realise you didn't make the decision of sending the photos overseas to be digitised. Was Fairfax too ambitious in trying to get their entire, their entire photo library digitised? Um. Well, look, I should preface this by saying I'm not an official company spokesman and I'm not necessarily on top of uh, every detail of this. But uh, my understanding is is I think that this, the Sydney Morning Herald alone, for example, has 10 million negatives. Um, then you've got all our, our regional publications and The Age, a huge newspaper that's been around for more than 150-odd years and, uh, and the Canberra Times and others, that it was just simply impossible to get... Uh, these are archives digitised in Australia. Um, it was not only really expensive, it would take decades. You know, they'd never done, I think the biggest ever kind of digitisation project here was about 150,000 mm. negatives, right? So so they went overseas and, um, and, and, and tried to do a deal that was cost effective, yeah, you know, 
it's no secret that media companies are doing it tough financially, so I'm sure that was part of the thinking. I don't know anything about the due diligence. I am told that uh, I am told that the age negatives have already been returned. I'm also uh, told that they're negotiating over the others to get them digitised with the receivers. So I don't know much more than that, but. Um, you can see why they did it. I mean, there's, these are an inc- incredibly precious resource for the nation. I mean, I'm sure, I doubt there's an archive this this big of photographs in this country. Mm. And um, so it's important they're safeguarding and digitising is the right thing to do because, um, you know, negatives don't have a, 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 a um, infinite lifespan. You know, they're going to they're gonna degrade. So it's, it's good to get them done while they're, while they're in pretty good nick. So... Um, you know, we as journalists are so proud of the photographs that Fairfax takes. We're so proud of the history that you can go back and see these amazing photographs. They're, they're a great, great resource. So I just hope they sort it out, basically. Of course. Amy, is it concerning that a large portion of Australia and New Zealand's photojournalism for the past decades is somewhat at risk or is the future is uncertain? Yeah, I think obviously that's a huge concern. But I mean, it, it, there's also there would also be a concern if you left them on negatives. Like you say, they have a finite shelf life. Imagine if there was a fire and they all went up in smoke, you know, like you do have to put these things away for posterity. But I guess it, John's point is that it seemed to this seemed to have been brokered behind closed doors and suddenly it was happening and it's all gone pear-shaped and, you know, perhaps this was foreseeable. But... Yeah, it's a very it's a, there's arguments both ways, I guess. John, just briefly on this one, um, what would have been a better approach, perhaps? Well, I don't know. The the, the interesting thing um, beyond what is going is or isn't going to happen to this, it may well be that the receivers um, uh, are amenable to to sorting something out, and it all, everything comes back and it's perfect. But one thing that has happened here. Uh, is that um, with the New Zealand archives anyway? Is that some of the um, the originals have actually been sold off on eBay? What they do is they they had a right to sell off some photos on eBay and some which which haven't been identified at this stage, which may well be historical photos we don't know, um, have have been, have been sold off, and it just seems to be very like a very loose sort of, uh, arrangement and. I, I, it's the old the old sort of story is you know if a deal sounds too good to be true then it probably is and I'm not one to to, to question sort of the, the the way that sort of Fairfax went about this and um, as Tom said you know these are pretty rough times and anything you can get to anything you can do to to secure the, these um, uh, negatives and and, and um, without costing too much money is great but. I just wonder if, if, if it raises questions about how much we can really rely on um, the media to look after what are sort of treasures of items, sort of whether, we, we, whether we can just sort of continue to um, uh, leave it in their hands. What, what would happen if, um, if these um, photos were um, claimed in a, uh, in, in a, um, in a legal action by, um, by this firm? Those, um, John, uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off there. Those are excellent questions. We'll have to leave our listeners at home. That is it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Don't forget, you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SER website. I'm Rafael Garcia. Thank you to our guests, Tom Allard, Amy Coops, and John Vinnan. Join us again next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. 
Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3 and at 2SER.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events. 